This is session 36 of our synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. This is after the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus is now leaving Jerusalem, headed toward Judea. He's pretty much finished with his Galilean ministry, although there is one more incident in Galilee that takes place much later. But uh, he's going to now set his focus toward Judea and Perea. And to give you an idea of where we are in the timeline, Jesus knows that six months from now he will be crucified. So let's jump right on in there. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 1. It says, After these things the Lord appointed seventy others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is indeed plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say to them, Peace be to this house, and if the son of peace is there, then your peace will rest upon them. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in that house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in that town and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, then go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And Jesus told them, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, then they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. And then he told the seventy, The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Folks, if any of this is familiar to you, it's probably because you remember it from session 20. Jesus said similar things to the twelve before he sent them out. That was in Matthew chapter 10 and Luke chapter 9, for those of you who want to go back and do some comparisons. But anyway, Jesus sent the seventy out, And they returned, verse 17, it says, The seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall, like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Folks, those last two verses are extremely valuable to us today because so many Christians get into trouble either overemphasizing verse 19 or overemphasizing verse 20. Verse 20, Jesus makes it very clear that what we are about is our relationship to God through Jesus Christ. Our names are written in heaven. That's what we're all about. The fact that we have power over demons and spiritual forces in Jesus' name is not to be the main focus. On the one hand. On the other hand, some people use this verse 20 as a mandate to completely ignore demonic phenomena. 
Little kids who are afraid of the dark were all taught that there's nothing to be afraid of in the dark. There's nothing in the closet. There's nothing under your bed. It's superstition. It's fairy tale. It's your imagination. There's no reality to those fears. So we grow up with that education, even in Christian circles, so that when someone is oppressed demonically by something at two o'clock in the morning that they can't explain or understand, they're afraid to talk to people about it because they don't want to be labeled as nuts or kooks. And in Christian circles, they're really afraid to talk about it because most Christian groups will not even recognize any of this phenomenon as real. We've all bought the worldview that the supernatural is closed, that there is no supernatural. That's the Middle Ages. That's the way things used to be. That's not the way they are now. Now, there's no truth to that viewpoint. All you have to do is turn over to the History Channel or the Discovery Channel and look at the lineup for what's on there. Hours upon hours of documentaries about every manner of supernatural phenomenon you can think of. And the biblical Christian worldview concerning how to deal with supernatural phenomena is totally absent from any of those documentaries. And folks, Christians ought to be the ones who corner the market on what this is all about. The Bible has the answers. The Bible tells us what these things are. The Bible tells us how to deal with it. Now, should every sermon, every Bible lesson be about fighting demons and demonic phenomena? No. But to completely ignore it as though it's not happening, folks, that's devastating. If Jesus wanted us to completely ignore the demonic realm, then why would he give us the authority over all of the enemy's power? And folks, this goes even beyond just his authority. Let's peek ahead to John chapter 14. Look at verse 16 and 17 there. Jesus was referring to what would take place after he was crucified and rose from the dead. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another comforter to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Folks, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that makes you reborn, that you're sealed with after you get saved. The authority that he's given us that you see here introduced to these 70 disciples, these 70 disciples, they don't even have the Holy Spirit yet. That didn't come until Pentecost recorded in the book of Acts. So this goes beyond just authority. We have God inside of us. You know, every now and then, and I've been guilty of this, I'll hear Christians talk about praying that God will send his angels to protect us, that God's angels will be with us, and God's angels will do this, and God's angels will do that. Folks, we have God himself. Look at First John chapter 4, verse 4. It says, He who lives in you is greater and mightier than he who is in the world. And in the context of that entire chapter, he's talking about agents of the Antichrist. He's talking about demons. He's talking about the supernatural sphere. He who lives in you is greater, is stronger, is mightier than he who is in the world. Now, the same Jesus who gave us the Holy Spirit, that same Jesus also gave us his own authority to bind demons ourselves in his name. Now, if you'll remember all through the gospel account, Jesus was binding demons, healing people of demonic possession, so he has the authority. We've seen it. 
So now he's transferring that authority or sharing that authority is what I should say. According to Matthew chapter 18, verse 18. It's from the mouth of Jesus himself as he told his disciples that whatever they bound on earth would be bound in heaven. Now the word heaven in that context, there's three different ways the word heaven is used in the Bible. The third heaven is the one that we know about the most. It's where God's throne is. It's where Christians go when they die. The first heaven is the sky and the universe and everything that we can see. The second heaven is every part of the natural universe that we do not see, such as hyperspace or parallel dimensions, what we might call the supernatural sphere. Jesus is saying, I'm giving you the authority to bind what is in the second heaven, the supernatural sphere. Now, to bind something means to paralyze it, to restrain it, to tie it down. Jesus says, whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven, the second heaven. Remember the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit. All of that, folks, would be totally worthless if Jesus hadn't given us his authority over the enemy in Matthew chapter 18 and Luke chapter 10. He said, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven in Matthew 18. And right here in Luke chapter 10, verse 19, he says, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Now, unfortunately, religious cults have taken that last passage of Scripture and twisted it into a mandate to handle snakes in church. But that's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus used serpents and scorpions as symbols and idioms for different ranks of fallen angels and demons. He's telling us that we've been given the authority and the power to trample upon fallen angels and demons and over all their power. Now, does that mean that bad things will never happen to Christians? No. Does that mean Christians won't get sick? No. Does that mean that Christians won't be attacked by demons? No, absolutely not. If we were never going to be attacked, we would need the armor of God. But what it does mean, if Christians are openly confronted by demonic manifestations or supernatural warfare in a sense that is beyond what you would call normal warfare, such as poltergeist activity, alien abduction, shadow people in your room at night, sleep paralysis, night terrors, whatever. We have the authority granted to us by Jesus to shut these intrusions down. And it's not some long advanced Latin phrase. You don't have to recite the Lord's Prayer. All you have to do is say, be gone in Jesus' name. UFO researcher Joseph Jordan became a Christian once he realized that abductions were being aborted after they called out Jesus' name. It blew him away. World-renowned researcher Jacques Vallée, who is not a Christian, after doing decades of research with UFOs and alien abduction, he has come to the conclusion just on research alone that aliens are interdimensional beings, not from another star system, but from another dimension right here that they are not what they pretend to be, and that you cannot believe a word they say. 
Now, this is from a non-Christian secular researcher who's world-renowned for his research. He was personified in Close Encounters of the Third Kind as the French UFO researcher. And there's plenty of UFO researchers out there who have discovered that the name of Jesus stops this stuff. You can't get their testimony on the Discovery Channel or the History Channel. They don't want it. So then they go to places like Trinity Broadcasting Network or the Church Channel, and it's a fight to get it on there as well. There's a few ministries that manage to sneak it in there. But for the most part, traditional Christian ministries don't want to talk about this stuff. And someone once told me in an email, said, Josh, the reason why Christian ministries don't want to cover this in great detail is because it's not necessary to get people saved. We need to get the gospel out to them instead. Folks, the gospel is about deliverance. That's what the gospel's all about. People don't treat Jesus with any seriousness because in their minds, Jesus is a cartoon character on South Park. And they're having to deal with interdimensional terrorists who are ripping into their homes through the wall, kidnapping them in the middle of the night. The last thing they want to hear is some evangelist tell them about Jesus. But when someone can present to them the genuine, true, biblical Jesus, that he has power and authority over all of these entities, including aliens, then they get interested. And then when they find that through the Holy Spirit, they can be given the authority to overthrow the aliens themselves, then they want to get saved. Jesus said, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. You know, I wonder if it would still apply if I could say reptilians and greys. The seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on reptilians and greys poltergeists, ghosts, spirits, dragons, and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, verse 20, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. In other words, folks, don't let this power become a head trip. See, if you're not careful, you can go too far in either direction. One mistake is to completely ignore the power we've been given. The other mistake is to dwell on it and focus on it and think about it and nothing else. Satan loves it when you do that because then he'll start deceiving you about what's him and what isn't. And folks, if you examine Ephesians chapter 6 and look at all the pieces of armor under the armor of God, you'll find that most of warfare has got nothing to do with commanding demons to do anything. Spiritual warfare is mostly about defending ourselves from unwanted thoughts. It's in the mind. Belt the truth defends us against deception, and that's something we have to deal with 24 hours a day. Every time you turn on the TV, we're being lied to. And don't overlook the churches because of the times we're living in. There's a good chance you're being lied to there. Belt of truth. Breastplate of righteousness. What does that protect us from? Feelings of guilt. The shoes of peace. That protects us from anxieties, fears, impatience. 
The shield of faith extinguishes all the flaming darts of the wicked one, unwanted thoughts, doubts in God's faithfulness. What does the helmet of salvation do? That's our identity in Christ. What does the sword of the Spirit do? That's the Bible. That's our knowledge of the Word of God. We're attacked 24 hours a day by demonic forces via thoughts, unwanted thoughts, deceptions, lies. And folks, to me, of all the things that demons can do, to me, that's the most terrifying. What a demon can do with my brain when I'm not careful is more terrifying to me than all the floating furniture, scary voices, shadow people. All of that stuff's nothing. Once you see that stuff, you know what you're dealing with, and you just say, be gone in Jesus' name, and it's done. But if you're just sitting by yourself one night, and thoughts of loneliness start creeping in, depression, fears, most of us would just think that's just us thinking, right? But that's not always the case. When 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 says to take every thought captive, it really means it. Don't believe everything you think. Now, I know many Christians debate whether Satan has the ability to enter our minds or control minds or read minds. I don't want to get into any of those debates here. But one thing is certain. According to the Bible, Satan does have the ability from outside of our mind to place unwanted thoughts into our mind. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean he controls our mind. He could just get thoughts in there. Paul called these unwanted thoughts fiery darts in Ephesians 6. And they come from the wicked one, and I can prove it to you. How many of you have ever gone somewhere alone with a Bible to pray, got away from all the noises and all the distractions, started praying, and then from out of nowhere, all of a sudden you find yourself thinking some twisted, evil, wicked thought while right in the middle of trying to talk to God? In the communication sciences, that's known as hostile interference or hostile jamming. The last thing Satan wants is a Christian praying. So if Satan can do that while you're praying, then it can happen anywhere, under any circumstances, at any given time. A lot of times you'll have a big decision to make and you'll want to go to God for advice and direction. And first thing Satan will do is say, don't ask God what to do. He's going to ask you to do something that you don't want to do, or that you can't do. And then other times you will respond in obedience to something God's told you to do and time goes by and nothing's happened. And Satan says, you know why nothing's happened yet? It's because you're just stupid. You think God told you to do this, but that was all made up in your head. You just made that up. God didn't tell you anything. And then you'll go right to God in prayer and say, God, didn't you tell me this, that, and the other? God will confirm his promise to you. He'll confirm his orders. And then Satan will say, well, yeah, that's what he said, but you and I both know he's lying. And then we feel guilty for thinking stuff like that. But folks, don't feel guilty. It's not you thinking. It's Satan interfering with your prayer. It's a subtle tactic of disinformation from the enemy that's camouflaged as our own thoughts. Now, Satan knows that we'll believe our own thoughts before we believe his, and that's why he does it. He disguises his lies as our own thoughts. And that's why Paul told us in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, to take every thought captive and lead it into the obedience of Christ. Because if you don't take your thoughts captive, then your thoughts may take you captive. 
Don't believe everything you think. Those are not always your thoughts. But anyway, back to Luke chapter 10. After the 70 came back and rejoiced that even the demons were subject to them in Jesus' name, Jesus said, verse 21, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Once again, folks, he's repeating himself, but this is to a new group of folks. These are the 70, not the 12. But he's reminding them all of history, from Adam to Noah to Abraham, all the way up to his present day. Prophets, kings, they've all looked forward to the day that Jesus finally arrived to the earth. And it's amazing, the most educated, scholarly people on the planet wasn't even sure that he was really the Messiah. You know, if you think you know everything, then you can't learn anything. And that's part of what Jesus is saying here. These obedient and humble 70 disciples, they've been given the honor to see what so many have longed to see and never saw. With one exception here in verse 25, it says, Behold, a lawyer stood up, and it's talking about an expert in Mosaic law, a scribe, says a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? says he asked Jesus this to test him. Which means he's not really interested in how to inherit eternal life. He thinks he already knows how. And he's putting Jesus to the test. He's already heard about grace. Jesus has been teaching since the beginning of his ministry. That in order to get to heaven, you must be born again. In order to be born again, you must believe in the one whom the Father sent. What are the works of God that we should do to get eternal life? To believe in the one whom the Father sent. To trust in him, to lean upon him. Why? Because we can't do it, folks. But this guy is a scholar of the law. So he probably has this prepared debate in which he has already figured out what he's going to say in response to every response Jesus gives. He's heard Jesus talk about grace, so he thinks he's got all this figured out, not realizing Jesus is already ahead of him. Jesus already knows that he's not interested in hearing about grace, except to debate it, contradict it, and get into a big argument. He also knows that he's a scholar of the Mosaic Law. So when this guy asks Jesus, how do you get eternal life? Jesus responds and says to him, verse 26, what is written in the law? What do you read there? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And folks, just like an expert lawyer of the Mosaic Law, he was right. That's Leviticus 19.18, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. So Jesus said to him, verse 28, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Only problem with that, folks. Do you know anybody who has loved the Lord with all of their heart with all of their soul, with all of their strength, and with all of their mind, and their neighbor as themselves. Anybody who says that they've done that is either a liar or self-deluded. And this expert in the law, knowing this, 
felt he had to justify himself, which is why in verse 29 it says, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? See, this conversation didn't go where he thought it would go. He thought he was going to trip Jesus up on grace. And now he's feeling convicted because he is not meeting the requirements of the law to get into heaven. Jesus put him on the spot. You must love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who's my neighbor? Jesus replied, verse 30, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Okay, I got to stop it there. First of all, Jesus is really rubbing it in. A priest went by and didn't do anything. So this is a religious leader who didn't do what he was supposed to. A Levite, who's legally part of the priesthood, he didn't do anything. But then a Samaritan comes, and then he decides to intervene and do something for this poor guy. And that's a big insult to the lawyer that Jesus is talking to, because folks, a Samaritan, to the Jews, a Samaritan was the lowest form of humanity because they're not full-blooded Jew. There's Gentile blood mixed in with them. They didn't come to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple like they were supposed to. They worshiped God at a mountain. Remember the woman at the well that Jesus met in John chapter 4? She said, you Jews think you're supposed to go up to the temple in Jerusalem and worship God, but we believe we're supposed to do it here at the mountain. So Jesus is really rubbing it in. The guy asked him, well, who is my neighbor? Well, I'll tell you who your neighbor is. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side, didn't do anything. And then likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side, didn't do anything. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I get back. So verse 36, Jesus narrows things down. Okay, which of these three, the Levite, the priest, or the Samaritan, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he answered, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So in short, who is my neighbor? Anybody who has a need that I come across. What a challenge, huh? Whenever someone tries to justify themselves, Jesus always goes by the law. Later, we'll find another scenario in which someone who's trying to justify themselves into heaven asks, what do I have to do to get into heaven? And Jesus tells him, sell everything you have and donate everything to the poor. Sell every single thing you have and follow me. And the guy couldn't do it because he was the richest man in the area. Couldn't let all of that go. But if he had been humble and if he had really been interested in how to get into heaven without doing it himself, using his own merits, 
How do I get into heaven? What must I do to get into heaven? The answer is believe in the one whom the Father has sent. Next time, we're going to continue in Luke chapter 10. And the I'm really looking forward to this next session, folks, because it's going to be all about prayer and how God wants prayer to go. It's all about intimacy with God. It's not about chanting. It's not about reciting poetry. It's about a love relationship. It's about intimacy with God. So that's for the next session. Until then, we are out of here. Take care, folks.